Good morning. We'll continue. Oh, was that loud? Is that too loud? Hello? All right. It's a little loud. Craig will take care of it. Um, we'll look at Acts 4 today in our morning study. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 to 22. We will eventually get through the whole chapter today. So let me pray and we'll, we will begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, another Lord's Day celebration in which the saints gather uh, to worship you through our mediator, Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for the communion of the saints. We thank you for the fellowship of the brethren, Lord. Uh, may today be a blessing Lord, above all, to your name, a blessing to your people, that they be edified in the truth, that we might live lives uh, that more radically glorify your name in every aspect of our lives. These things we ask, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Question here at the outset, how are we as Christians to respond when, when public authorities say, you know, you can be religious if you want, but you need to do it, you know, in the privacy uh, of your own home. You know, go ahead and go to your little churches, uh, but make sure you leave it there. And if you don't, you're going to be shut down, you're going to be gagged, you'll be silenced, and perhaps... In some places, which most certainly does happen, you'll be arrested. You'll be charged. You know, kids in public schools are given assignments. Write about somebody you love. So a kid in public school writes about Jesus, and then they're told they can't do that. And then when the parents protest, they're told by the principal... You know, perhaps you're not public school material. To which Cal Thomas once wrote an article on that very thing, and he said, perhaps that's a compliment. <laughs> I remember our son, we sent our sons to pub our kids to public school during their elementary years. Um, and our son was given a, an assignment, a piece of paper with, with a loop, like a uh, a curse, or like a cursive small case E. He says, we want you to make something out of this. We want you to tell us what it is, what it likes, what it does, where it lives. So he filled in and made a, a woman's face. And he says, she is my mom. She loves Jesus. I love her. She can tickle good. She's in my house now. To which, you know, the teacher kind of gives a little pat on the head. Now, it's cute. But the older one gets in proclaiming Christ, the more persecution one receives typically. In fifth grade, our son was reading through Pilgrim's Progress. In fifth grade, our son would challenge his teacher. And she was teaching evolution. And one day the teacher said, what are you reading? He said, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. She's like, I had to read that in college. And it's nothing but religious jargon. And the older you get, the greater the persecution. 
And when they stifle you and tell you to be quiet, how are Christians to respond to that kind of threat? Well, we find answers to those questions right here in Acts chapter 4 that were sufficient for Peter and John and are equally sufficient for you and me to this very day. So why don't we take a look at that, and then we're going to work through the text. Hopefully get through it here in the next 40 minutes. Verse 1, Acts 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple said, the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priest's family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. We'll just stop there for now. Now, as we, call, as we recall from our last study, this extraordinary uh, miracle took place in Solomon's portico among the colonnades, um, which is the, uh, the outer court of the temple, uh, where this cripple, who we just read is 40 years old, been crippled his entire life, obviously had to be brought there on a daily basis by friends and or family um, to his local begging spot. So this, they were well aware of who this individual uh, was. Um, they would have probably seen him every day, and now he's healed. He's standing there, actually leaping and walking and praising God. 
And verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Why? They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the miracle pointed back to Christ. They used the miracle to proclaim Christ. And notice, to proclaim Christ, you must proclaim his resurrection. We're in Romans 10. If you believe in Jesus and you don't believe in his resurrection, guess what? You're not saved. <laughs> You're not saved. How do we deal with friends who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus? I believe in Jesus. I just have a problem with this resurrection thing. You're not saved. It's that simple. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. Confess with your heart, you don't believe in your heart, you don't believe he was raised from the dead, you're not saved. It's pretty simple. So this teaching, this doctrine, this preaching of the apostles was all about Jesus. They're constantly talking about Jesus, continually speaking of his work, his life, his death in Jerusalem. They're talking about Calvary. And they were especially talking about his resurrection, that physical manifestation of the human body of Jesus that raised up from the grave after three days. So by, by the way of signs of an apostle, signs, miracles, and wonders, the, this miracle provided validation for their message. And remember we said last week, when we read throughout the New Testament, signs of an apostle were made manifest to validate the message they preached. We no longer need signs of an apostle because apostles don't exist. We no longer need signs to validate the message of God because the canon's closed. We have the word of God. The only way to test if a man speaks the truth or not is whether or not it lines up with the word of God. The truth. And they say, look, back in chapter 3, don't look at us. Don't wonder about this miracle. Look away from us. Look away from the cripple who's healed, who's now leaping and walking, and look to Christ. Look beyond the miracle to that which validates the miracle, and it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who glorified his servant, Jesus Christ. Our Lord and our Savior. The one you denied, right? Did you get that in the preaching? You denied him. You crucified him with your own hands. You asked for a murderer in his place. You cried out for Barabbas. You killed the author of life, chapter 3. Question. What in the world was one to do out of that crowd who railed against Jesus? What in the world was one to do who stood amongst the people and said, give us Barabbas, crucify Christ? What are you to do? Now you're confronted with this preaching. What if you were one of the mob who said, crucify him? What do you do? You do nothing less than what we're called to do 2,000 years later. Chapter 319, repent. <laughs> Turn to him, the source of life. And believe. Is their sin any greater than ours? No. Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. They were proclaiming Jesus. So here we see the first record of persecution 
for the name of Christ. Jesus warned his disciples over and again, over again, what? You will be persecuted for my name's sake. You will be. So this first and second wave of persecution, the first we see in chapter 4, verse 1, the second the second uh, wave we see in chapter 5 and verse 17 are being carried out by a group known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees. A ruling class of, of wealthy aristocrats of the day. They were a group, spiritually dead, liberal, a liberal sect, if you will. They didn't believe in the resurrection. is one thing they didn't believe. Now, they had John and Peter thrown in jail for the night. We see Caiaphas was there. We see the same mob gathered together that presided over Jesus' trial, kangaroo court, night court, which was illegal, by the way. Same people are there. And they saw the apostles as agitators. They, they viewed them as heretics. How ironic, Amen. As heretics, disturbers of peace, enemies of the truth. Verse 4, but many, but many of those who had heard the word believed. So here's the preacher preaching, Peter, he's preaching away. Many who heard believed. They repented, they turned. That's the power of preaching, amen. God brings in his elect, as we will see today through the sermon. God brings in his elect by way of proclamation, by way of preaching. And we're all preachers, amen? We preach Christ. When you witness, you're preaching Christ. Preaching means to herald, means to announce. You're announcing Christ. Peter's announcing Christ. I announce Christ. You announce Christ. And the number, it says, of men that came... To believers, about 5,000. Now, remember the church, or I mean the uh, message at Pentecost? It says 3,000 souls were saved. Here it talks about 5,000 men. He uses the gender specific here, meaning men and not women. So if we think about it, there's 5,000 men saved plus women. It could have been upward of 15,000 saved on this day. Amazing. So in a space of a few weeks, the church has multiplied. It continues to grow at an extraordinary rate here. And perhaps this is a manifestation of what Peter you know, alluded to in the sermon that he just preached back in chapter 3, where he speaks about times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. Remember the Holy Spirit descended upon them. The very presence of God was made manifest in a great way, in a very supernatural way. Where we see momentarily, you know, a, a release from the curse of Babel. God divided their tongues at Babel when, the, when men stood and said, we will build a tower unto God. Self-worship. So God makes it that they can't communicate with one another. It's part of the curse, part of God's judgment. And here we see that lifted temporarily in Pentecost. And they're, they're hearing one another speak in foreign tongues, understanding what they're saying, you know? It was the presence of the Lord, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. So he preaches again, and John and Peter are now brought to give an account 
before the Jewish temple um, Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin consisted of uh, 71 members. 71 members presided over by the high priest. So it would include elders and teachers of the law, scribes who copied and preserved it or interpreted the word, the law. And after this undeniable event, it says it was undeniably true, the supernatural miracle here, they were annoyed. (laughs) People get annoyed. Do people get annoyed over the word of God? Yeah. Even some Christians get annoyed over the word of God. They, they profess to be Christian, and, and some of them are. Many of them are, and they still get annoyed over the Word of God. Perhaps we all get annoyed over parts of the Word of God. But they were annoyed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. One man once said, a commentator, he said, Jesus promised his disciples three things. Number one, that they would be absurdly happy. Number two, they would be completely fearless. And number three, they would be in constant trouble. And here they are in trouble for proclaiming his name. And Jesus warned them in the upper room only a couple months earlier. The world, in this world, you will have tribulation and the world will hate you for my name's sake. Beware when all men speak well of you. When preachers, for instance, want all people to speak well of them, they miss it. They're missing it. We don't want to make enemies, right? I don't want enemies. But any preacher who's going to preach the whole counsel of God, even within the camp, so to speak, of Christianity... The people who will rail against you. But Jesus warned his own men. He warned his own disciples. I mean, you'd think that a crippled man who's been crippled since birth for 40 years, right? Jumping up and leaping, that it would cause them to praise God? You would think so. It didn't happen. Why? Why? Why didn't they believe when they see this? Anybody? Quite simply, physical miracles are not the cause for belief. How many people have you met? If God would just show me a miracle, I would believe. When I used to go into prisons all the time, I heard that over and over again with these punks who, who mock God. In Luke 16, Jesus talks about a man in paradise and a man in hell. Okay, and let's not forget, people don't like fire and brimstone preachers. Jesus was the fire and brimstone preacher. He talks about the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the man who's in hell, he's in torment, eternal torment. And once you're there, it has no remedial effect. You don't change. You don't repent. You can't repent. You're always in that state for eternity, and there's no crossing from there to glory. And Jesus tells the stories. This man cries out. He says, I beg you, Father, Abraham, to send, to send him to my father's house. 
Okay, send Lazarus, who's in paradise. <clears throat> send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, so that, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses, they have the prophets, let them, what? Hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Any greater miracle than that? No. A man lumping, leaping and jumping for joy who's been crippled for 40 years pales in comparison to someone raised from the grave. There's another Lazarus who was raised from the grave after four days, and when the Pharisees saw it, they couldn't deny it, but what did it cause them to do? Not believe. What did they want to do? They wanted to not only kill Jesus, but kill Lazarus. Why? Because on account of him, people were believing. Miracle's not going to do it. That's why we preach the truth. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. You see, here's a group so caught up in their little rules, man-made rules, their own little uh, regulations, and they were certainly caught up with the name Jesus the Nazarene. Not in love, not in submission, but in antagonism. Jesus the Nazarene, as Peter refers to him, certainly not a term of endearment, amen? Remember how Nathaniel spoke of Nazareth? When they said, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was in the north, a little village of Galilee. We were there when we were in Israel in 2008. It's in the hill country. It was known for nothing good. And God sends his Messiah, his only begotten son, to be born in Bethlehem, as Scripture said, to flee to Egypt, as Scripture said, and then to come back and, and reside in Nazareth. And these disciples are followers of him, that Nazarene, that troublemaking country prophet. <laughs> his followers are the ones doing this preaching. His followers are the ones doing this, these miracles in his name. They hated him. So this court was astonished at the courage of these two, no doubt about it. Why? Particularly because they were unschooled, meaning uh, not that they were illiterate. We never want to think of the apostles as being illiterate. They were very literate men, beloved. And after all, they were fishing businessmen in Galilee. They spoke Hebrew. They knew some Aramaic. They could obviously speak and communicate in Greek, the language of the day, in, in doing business here. And they ran successful fishing businesses. What it means when they talk about these untaught men, it means that they had received no proper training, that is in rabbinical theology. It's the th same thing that they 
accused Jesus of. These are ordinary men. The word is idiotes, which simply means non-professional. Not unlike their master. In John chapter 4, you remember, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching, and the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this, this man has learning? When he has never studied. Quick answer, he's God. (laughs) But they knew they didn't come up through their ranks. He didn't come up through their ranks. Neither did his little followers. So they took note. Notice, they took note there in the text. These men had been with Jesus. I don't know if I've ever been accused of that. Wow, they could tell he's been with Jesus. I hope to be accused of that. Great thing to be accused of. So verse 14, they could in no way deny seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. They had nothing to say. The man was what? Standing there. Healed standing. Very interesting. Never able to stand for 40 years, and there he is. Luke makes reference as a doctor. He was standing. A cripple, standing. Now, they would have been the laughing stock of Jerusalem had they denied the fact this man was standing. Amen? They knew this. It was undeniable. They, they openly acknowledged it, or they didn't openly acknowledge it. They acknowledged it among themselves. They didn't deny it, but did not acknowledge it openly. So really, if you think about it, out of utter embarrassment, they order these two out of the court to now confer in private. A little semi-semi-circle, self-righteous counsel. See, the, the, the message of the apostles is Jesus Christ crucified and raised. That's their message. That's the, that's the entire theme of the chapter. And interestingly enough, the Greek word for resurrection is anastosis, and the main part of that word stosis means to stand. This man is standing physically, restored spiritually. So maybe Luke is providing a kind of play on words or something. But this man is a symbol of gospel power, amen? Gospel power. Physically, standing, spiritually, on his feet. So at this point, they thought they could you know, contain the damages to the um, exercise of their religious power. All to no avail. So they reason within their little circle... Verse 17, it says, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no war to anyone in his name. Verse 18, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The issue here is one of authority, right? It's a matter of authority. The authorities who set themselves against Jesus only weeks prior to this day 
are setting themselves or set themselves against the authority of the universe. Jesus. Who, by the way, has commanded his disciples to be witnesses of him? Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 1 and verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is a clash of authority. Don't speak anymore in his name. That's what authoritative figures want to do. If you speak in his name, this will be the consequence. You can do it in your little church. You can do it in your little groups, but don't bring it here. Don't bring it out here. Or there's consequences. So it's either that versus what Jesus said. Tell it to every living creature. So the question is, who will they determine to obey? Verse 19, Peter and John answered, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So the principle is very simple. Since God is the highest authority, the spirit-filled Christian must always submit to God in obedience and in praise regardless of the circumstances or regardless of what authorities say who are subject to him. Amen? Does this mean that we should read our Bibles when we're at work because God tells us to read the Word? No, when we're at work, we should what? Work. That's a terrible Christian testimony, by the way reading their Bible when they should be bearing the load. It's not spiritual. It's disobedient. Amen? Mark, can you imagine one of your field workers reading his Bible kicked back in his truck? (laughs) I don't think so. So as a Christian man, if that's all he did, he he should be fired. He needs to either repent and go to work or eventually be fired. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about appearing to be spiritual or rebellious at work. The ultimate authority is Jesus. We're all under authority, right? We're all called to submit. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Church is to submit to the leaders of the church. We submit to God. We all submit to God. Children submit to their parents. It's a life of submission. But what Peter's doing here, notice first we get back to verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and the elders, if if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all you, to all the people of Israel. By the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised up from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He has become the chief cornerstone. That's bold. That's bold. Now, Peter is doing, of course, what he will later exhort his readers to do when he writes his epistles, First and Second Peter. He's writing to the church which is under heavy persecution, writing to Christians who are going through the same thing that he's going through and will go through, some of whom will lose their lives. And he says this to them in 1 Peter, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, 
nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Right? There's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So he gives that message of hope in his sermon to the lost and religiously corrupt. And he says in verse 12, There is salvation in no one else. In no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that is the man Christ Jesus. No way. No other way. Now, you know, in our postmodern age, saying that Jesus saves isn't really all that offensive. After all, shall we not just coexist, as the bumper sticker says? Shall we not just coexist? So if you want to believe Jesus saves, that's fine. But don't you dare say he's the only way to be saved. And then when I ask, save from what? You say hell and God's wrath? Don't you dare say that. Right? That response from the world causes many preachers, if they want to call themselves that, to water down the word. To water it down, to make Jesus more palatable. Never talk about hell. And that kind of philosophy, you know, it leads to this oneness, you know, ecumenical movement of joining arms with all faiths together that we're under this universal banner of um, all being with God. Universalism. A lie from the pit of hell. Peter was reflecting, of course, on the fact that Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Right? You see, the religious people of the day, this group, the Sanhedrin, they could see, but they couldn't see. They could hear, but they did not hear. They saw it with their eyes, but had not the capability to see Christ as who he truly is through the proclamation of this servant of Christ. They heard the words, but they could not hear. See, sin has a blinding effect on man's judgment, amen? Amen even when it comes to irrefutable evidence like this, which they did not deny because they could not deny and they dared not deny it for a moment. But it can't make people believe. Physical miracles are not the cause of belief. It's the supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit. So for the sake of application, when are we permitted to disobey the state, for instance? Right? Romans 13 is clear. The state is delegated authority by the power of God, and we're called to submit. They do not bear the sword in what? In vain. Peter, was gonna, Peter pulled out the sword, was ready to fight. 
Jesus said, if you live by the sword, Peter, you will die by the sword. In other words, if you murder, the state will have you killed. Validating, by the way, capital punishment. But these leaders are not autonomous because God has authority over all. Quite simply, beloved, if the state forbids what God requires or requires what God forbids, Christians are then not to submit, right? And as a result, some some form of civil disobedience is unavoidable. However, many people attempt to defy the government by disobeying the law. Right? They'll disobey the law, you know, promoting a certain, uh, a certain cause that they may stand behind. Saying that they're being resistant because, uh, you know, this kind of action my conscience won't allow. This kind of thing happened during the Vietnam conflict. Right? Where a lot of guys, uh, and Christians get involved in this also. They, they adopt this cultural mindset. And a lot of young men back in the 60s and in the 70s uh, were opposed to the Vietnam War, refusing to go, saying, you know, my conscience won't allow me to serve. But yet when you lock, watch their lives, there was many other things they did which were much more evil and filthy and dirty, and obviously their conscience had no bearing on that activity. They disobeyed the authorities, not to serve God, but to serve themselves and their own convoluted little personal, social, political views. It's what I call the, the hypocritical hippie. Remember the hippie movement? Ridiculous. So these guys are released. Okay, Peter and John refuse to obey the religious authorities here. They're released. And notice where they go. They, they go directly to their own people. Did you notice that? Well, we didn't get that far. They were released, verse 23. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together in God and said, Sovereign Lord. Did you get that? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2. So they make their way to their friend's house, wherever that was in the city of Jerusalem. They tell their friends what happened, and immediately, in response, they all lift up their voices together to God. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't have to debate about it. They didn't have to plan it. They just did it. Amen? They just did it. A release of praise from within. Prayer was like breathing to them. First century church, amen? It was like breathing. They gave it priority. It was a way of life. In our prayer life, no doubt, is really the ultimate test of our profession of faith, our prayer life. So Peter and John, they spent a night in prison. They're you know, brought before the Sanhedrin. They preached. They've been threatened. They're threatened not to preach in the name of Jesus, the very thing they've been doing since Pentecost. And in verse 29, And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all what? 
boldness. What a prayer request. So notice they, 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 they call on the Lord. They address him as sovereign, creator, redeemer. They cite David, Psalm 2, which is a picture, by the way, of this, Psalm 2. It's a picture of heathen political powers gathering together. They could be enemies from around the world, but there's one thing they have in common. They gather together in order to direct their arrows towards Almighty God. How does God respond? Just if your son, who's three, thought he could take on the neighborhood or jump into one, you know, a boxing ring with the heavyweight champion of the world, well, what do you do but laugh? Oh, how cute. That's what God does. Political leaders of our day who hate God, imagine them gathering together and pointing their nuclear missiles to God. What's God going to do then? Laugh. Laugh. These enemies, which came from unrelated locations, is exactly what the apostles, and is exactly what Jesus himself experienced. You have Herod, and you have Pilate, and you have you know, the Sanhedrin, and you have the Sadducees. All these came together against God and against his anointed to carry out what the sovereign Lord decreed to do in eternity past. Amen? And God laughs. They were united in opposition to God. If you're, they're, they're united in opposition to Jesus, and to be united in opposition to Jesus is to be united in opposition to God. No one knows God without knowing his son. No one can worship God without being submitted to the Son, who's the one and only mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man Christ Jesus. Amen? Notice what he says in verse 28. Notice verse 27 first. Truly in this city, okay, in, in light again of Psalm 2, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all screaming to what? Crucify him. To do, notice now, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, for these early Christians, God's absolute sovereignty was simply a point, wasn't rather simply a point of doctrine like it is to many of us today. It was much more than that. It wasn't simply a, a, a place of debate for them. They truly trusted and believed in it. It wasn't their drum to beat. They wanted to know, okay, was God in absolute control? The Messiah has come. He's been crucified. Were the events of these last two months uh, random disorder or the absolute sovereign decree of God? Oh, by this time, they believe it, amen? They believe it, and they pray accordingly. 
So we see for these early Christians, you know, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the, the doctrine of, of God's predestination, his providence assures them. It assures them. That all of history, every event, every detail, every good cir- every circumstance, whether it was good or whether it was bad, whether it was righteous or evil, it is all under the sovereign framework of, of this God, the one and only God. So they, they pray according to this divine reality. The persecution they just received and the persecution they will go on to receive. All of which will face death with the exception of John. Well, he'll die, but not, not, martyr, by, not by martyrdom. And notice verse 29. And now look, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Okay? They speak with boldness. They're arrested, sent out, and they go home and pray for more boldness. When you're persecuted, friends, you, you, you know, you, you, you share Christ with your unbelieving parents or your unbelieving children or your unbelieving neighbor or whoever and you're railed against or you're mocked or you're laughed at and you think man maybe I need to change the message maybe I messed it up a bit there's no problem with the message at all yeah we might want to hone our skills and how we do it but still that's not going to make them believe so when you're shut down pray for more boldness And we can take from this example, notice, and I'll stop here. God swiftly answers their prayer. Notice verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. They pray for boldness, and he gives them boldness. He rocks the house. And they continue to preach with boldness. That's why everybody hated them. The enemies of God, that is. The friends of God, it was unity. All man? Amen. Comments, questions? Yes. Question was, would Paul have been part of the Sanhedrin in this event? And it's very, very possible. You know, some skeptics say, even some comment. When you read liberal scholars, you know who believes and who doesn't. Or when you believe liberal scholars, you can tell many of them aren't believers. And some of them will comment on this very situation. Um, you know, what the council spoke about. And they'll even say, oh, as though Luke knew what they said. They'll even kind of parenthesize that in their commentary. Well, number one, it's by divine inspiration. And if we want to think on a practical level, it was very likely that Paul, who would become the apostle, known as Saul at this time, would have been part of the Sanhedrin who was there in council against the apostles. Very possible. Good question. Anybody else? Well, then we will close and prepare to worship the Lord together. Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful account, an account of proclamation, persecution, and as a result, even greater boldness um, to proclaim your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, We thank you that there are authorities set in place 
for the protection of society. We thank you for that. We honor those positions. Help us, Lord, to be discerning on where we draw the line. May we not use it as an excuse to be lawbreakers, but may we stand forthrightly in the power of the Holy Spirit with discernment and wisdom from on high, granted to us according to your Spirit's kindness and grace and mercy. For we pray in Jesus' name.